We are blessed. And blessed to have you with us today on this last Sunday of the new year to celebrate it together. How does it affect you looking at the last day of 2023? Does it impact you in any particular way? Are you anticipating a great New Year's party tonight? Or are you thinking about how you're going to make ends meet in the new year? <laughs> or maybe it even provokes thoughts of nostalgia, thoughts of the futility of life, how it just keeps going in circles. If only we could be sure that the new year really would bring new life, new things, that is, good things, positive Hopeful, but always hidden behind the curtain, the veil of the new year, is the unknown. And the unknown can provoke fears, can't it? Well, King David in Psalm 39 was experiencing some of these feelings as he contemplates the brevity of his life. And it's just a good passage for us to share together, I would like you to read it with me. Psalm 39, verses 4 to 7. Let's read. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone's life is but a breath. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. But now, O oh Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Can you make that statement this morning? My hope is in the Lord. I hope and pray that that's... The sentiment in each of our hearts as we look out on this new year, as we look at what King David was thinking about, he was contemplating this fast-flowing river of life that you can never step in the same river twice, right? It's slipping through our hands, so to speak. So it's no wonder that David's son, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, writes both stoically and passionately about his own weariness from searching for significance and meaning in human existence. Solomon, he had tried it all, hadn't he? But he wasn't able to find anything but vanity. It all seemed destined for the sameness of what has already been. And no genuine newness could be found anywhere under the sun, he says, both in nature and in human experience. The patterns seem exactly the same. We're all just in the process of being washed down the river to the sea, but the sea never fills up. So this was Solomon's conclusion he says, I, the convener of the assembly, 
So that word is sometimes translated the teacher or the preacher, but literally, kohelet in the Hebrew suggests the convener of the assembly. He was the head over that assembly. He says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on the sons of Adam. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are vanity. A striving after the wind. And notice, I've underlined that word vanity so that you can think about where it comes from in the Hebrew and what it actually means down below. It tells you the Hebrew word here is hevel. And its meaning is a mist, a vapor. This is what he's really saying every time he says the word vanity in this book. Life is just like a mist. The sun comes out and it's gone. Like a vapor rising and dissipating. So the king was seeing how most of our daily time and energy is spent on things that are totally empty of lasting value and meaning. We need this perspective of ourselves don't we? Yes, the New Testament will give us more perspective on this, but if we don't learn this first, we won't appreciate what the New Testament has to teach us about it. So it's very important that we return to this book on occasion, and I think the last day of the year is a good opportunity for it. But too often, instead of moving us to search out the reason for our, for our existence, how we can employ our time coming to know our maker, the very vanity that we see and experience in life drives many to seek entertainment and diversion in ever stronger doses, stronger sensations, in more extreme stimuli that, of course, can lead to addictions and other very destructive behaviors. So we humans, you know, we really can be rather boring at times. You know what I mean? In terms of our cycles and repetitions, same old, same old, we say, because we're so predictable. Stumbling over the same stone time and time again without learning our lesson. Or is this just me? You guys don't experience this? Okay. I'm glad to hear somebody's awake out there. <laughs> it's why I'm convinced that at the end of the year, at least, as it brings us face to face with the fact that we were right here at this same place just last year at this time, right? <laughs> we were right here staring a new year in the face. So we've got to stop and ask, have we made any progress? Or are we really just going in circles? And at least those of us who claim to practice Christian faith, we should, in term that prog we should interpret that progress question in terms of, have I become any more Christ-like? Do I love God more passionately? Am I learning to love my neighbor practically, realistically? Am I becoming more generous, more compassionate, more patient, more long-suffering? Am I facing life's uncertainties with more faith 
with more confidence. You see, the end of the year really speaks to us keenly about our deep need for spiritual renewal. Is that you? A deep need for spiritual renewal? What spiritual resources and hope do you have as you look out on the challenges of 2024, which is already beset with wars and rumors of wars, already operating deep in the red, mountains of financial debt, already plagued with countless barriers of separation, prejudice, discrimination, persecution. This year is already going to have plenty of that. We know before we put one foot into it, don't we? Our middle son wrote us a very sweet Christmas note this year. And I even asked if I could share a portion of it. I asked permission. Eh? We learned to do that. (laughs) If I could share a portion of it with you this morning. As he reflected on his situation and ours, he said, Sometimes I just despair when I look at the state of the world that my children will be growing up in. I guess that's why we need Christmas so much. It's a struggle to not just want to give up. And those two phrases that are under the magnifying glass there really caught my attention and grabbed my father's heart. And it struck me they are actually strong temptations that all of us face at some point or another as we look out on this new year. Despair over the state of the world. I mean, you can't look at the news, whether on TV or on Internet, on your phone or wherever. You can't look at the news and not be almost overwhelmed by it. Unless you only watch the sports news or... (laughs) And even there, you can get into some really messes. Mm. I'm sure you feel this as well, looking out on this world. It can provoke a lot of despair, especially as I think about my grandchildren growing up in it. And so the second temptation there, a struggle not to give up. Does that cross your mind sometimes? Oh, it's just not worth it. I'm going to throw in the towel. I'm going to crumble under the pressure. Our son Joel went on to affirm his assets. In the face of these temptations, in the face of these struggles and tensions, he went on to say, but I've got... And then he went on to list the reasons why he would not get stuck in despair and why he would not give up. And those reasons had everything to do with faith in a living Lord. The gifts that have come from that Lord, the the wife and family he mentions that God had given him, the beauty of God's creation and the recreation that is available to all of us in Christ and Emmanuel. He said that one was really important too. God with us. You see, that's solid biblical reasoning. 
We can't avoid the bombardment from this world. But we can fight back with biblical reasoning. You have to argue with your soul. You have to reason with your soul according to God's truth, according to what comes out of his word. Ruth Haley Barton is a very inspirational writer, founder of Transforming Center for Spiritual Leadership, and she has this to say. I hope you identify with it. We are made for more, more of God than we have right now, more peace, more joy, more love, deeper levels of wisdom and discernment. True transformation and life change. Whether we can fully articulate it or not, on some level, we know we're made for more and we are wired to keep seeking it. Does that resonate with you? Is your heart longing for this? Do you recognize this need in yourself? Keep growing. Mm. There's so many areas in my life where I, I need to improve, where I need to mature still at this age. And you know, the option is stagnation. How many would like to um, sign up for stagnation this year? No, that is not exactly what we want. But when you choose not to grow in the face of trials and challenges, you're opting for stagnation. We have to keep growing, folks. It's it's equivalent to breathing. We're wired, she says, to keep seeking this, to keep seeking that deeper relationship with the Lord. We know that he has more of himself to give, but we're so often preoccupied with so many other things, not having tuned our priorities or fine-tuned our priorities so that they really coincide with his. Because to get to that more, we really have to understand where we are, the truth of where I really am, what's going on with me. Why have I not grown more this past year? So I wonder, is this you a lot of the time? Just barely hanging on, trying to hang in there. Got so much on my plate, I can't handle it all. Yeah, I've said that too. No time or energy left to devote to soul transformation. Soul transformation. Are you kidding? (laughs) You never get around to thinking about that. We can't follow Christ and not think about having our souls transformed. Impossible. You're not following Christ if you're not thinking about getting your heart transformed to look like his. 
And in order to grow beyond where we are toward real soul transformation, we have to be more aware of the obstacles, the discouragements, the shortcomings, what the writer to the Hebrews calls the sin that so easily besets. Mm. Do you know which one that is? Mm. You'd better. You need to know which sin that is that can so easily trip you up and turn you the wrong direction. Our brokenness, the hole in my soul. You know where it is? You know the only thing that can fill it? Because whatever is unhealthy, unresolved, dysfunctional within you will inevitably find its way into your relationships, in your family, your work, at church, your life projects will be contaminated with whatever is not healed inside you, whatever issues you're not facing and dealing with. It seeps out and seeps in to our relationships. Do we hear that? So how do you envision your future? What motivates you to reach out and embrace it with your whole being? What's your resource? Google? Saint Google, we call him. YouTube. Self-help. Popular culture full of slogans that will supposedly keep you on track. Worldly philosophers, philosophies. Oh, yeah, the world's full of all of that. Are those your resources? The one thing I want to get across this morning, Scripture has to be your first resource. Not saying we don't learn from each other and even from what's going on around us. Yeah, we learn things there, but we don't learn the truth and grace that we need except right here in the one who is the author of truth and grace, the personification of truth and grace. So I just want to take two examples, and we'll be done if I don't get too long-winded on these two examples. One from Paul in the book of Romans, and one from David in the Psalms. All right? So we start with Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul takes note of the groaning of creation. He says, even we are groaning. And who else is groaning with us? You know the passage? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself is groaning with us and groaning with creation. He's talking in this passage about our temporality. Yeah? Do we think in those terms? I'm just here for a short time. Not permanently. So I've got to make use of the time I have. Subject to wear and tear. Some of us are a little more aware of that than others, right? Yeah, the wear and tear. I'm feeling it every day. He's talking here about our bondage to corruption and decay. 
that characterizes all the created order. But then he's contrasting that with the spiritual freedom of the children of God. Hopefully we experience that too. And our future hope for full redemption. Boy, looking forward to that more and more. So let's focus on this passage for just a moment. Where Paul starts in verse 18 saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now take note here. This is a vision for the future. And you need a good, solid, biblical vision for the future. Because our world ignores that and says, no, the present is what matters. Live for the day. Carpe diem. A vision for the future. What is that glory that is yet to be revealed in us? Hopefully your mind goes straight to Colossians 1.27. Christ in you. The what? The hope of glory. Amen. He just encouraged me. Christ in you. The hope of glory. In other words, either you're headed toward that glory that comes from Christ or you're headed toward the glory of the dust that scatters, the grass that withers, the flower that fades. There are the only two options, the only two ways to follow. Either you're working for that glory that comes from God in Christ or you're just working, sowing to the flesh, as Paul put it in Galatians, Galatians 6. So which do you want your life to reflect? And that glory of Christ in us, do you associate that with anything in particular? This is what I do with my students at the seminary. <laughs> I lead them along like this with questions. What do you associate that glory with? And most of them have learned, oh, it must be the cross. <laughs> the cross must be the answer. Of course it is. Of course the cross is the answer. Where Jesus had just asked the Father to glorify him there at the cross so that he might glorify the Father. That's John chapter 17. That's his prayer. That's high priestly prayer just before the cross. He's expecting God to glorify him at the cross. And he's going to glorify the Father at the cross. And maybe you say, Oof, what glory was revealed at the cross? It looks so terrible. Just think of Exodus 34. When God made his glory pass by in front of Moses in the cleft of the rock, what was the glory there? It wasn't just a brilliant light show that, God, that caused God to have to hide Moses in the rock. It was the revelation of God's character as God passed by and let Moses see the backside of his glory he was telling him his name. He was announcing his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, and then declaring his character, compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, great in loving kindness and truth. That's the glory. That's what was so glorious about God that Jesus was revealing right there 
at the cross. That's the glory that's going to be revealed in you and me. And hopefully to the extent that we are becoming more Christ-like, it is beginning to show through even here. First fruits grow in the Spirit. Goes on in verse 19 to say, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Whoa. Why aren't the children of God revealed yet? Are we invisible? Well, to the rest of the world, (laughs) we're just another crazy sect. You know that, don't you? They don't see us as children of God, except in some generic sense, the same way that everybody else are children of God. Because until Christ is revealed, we are hidden in Him, called to do His work in His name without calling attention to ourselves. We're just the instruments. We're just pointing to Him. That's our calling, isn't it? He goes on to say, for the creation was subjected to frustration. The word that Paul uses in the Greek here is mataiotis. And its actual translation is worthlessness. You can see it down here at the bottom. Futility, vanity. Ah, there's that word again. Creation was subjected to vanity, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. You see, in Christ, we actually already have this glorious freedom in the Spirit to act according to Jesus' grace and truth. We have that privilege and that power in the Spirit of Christ, do we not? Uh, Yeah, I forgot that was there, Pastor. It's the fine print, I know. We, We don't. Remember to act on it often. Yeah, we have that freedom to act like Christ according to His grace and truth. In the worst circumstances, we have that freedom. And God has projected the day when all creation will be restored to that freedom to fulfill its function, its purpose, its potential. And meanwhile... Paul reminds us of something very important in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He reminds us that because God has already given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord there on the cross, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't get stuck in despair. Don't give up. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not in vain. Here's where we overcome the vanity, isn't it? The futility, the worthlessness. It's right here. Oh, yeah, but I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a minister. No, no, you don't have to be. Your daily work, whatever it is, can be consecrated unto the Lord. So that whatever you're working at there 
You're working for him. And it's not in vain. That's where we overcome what Solomon was feeling. Reminds me of a little poem by C.T. Studd. He was a, a British cricketer. Is that how you say that? <laughs> Played cricket. But he was also a missionary to China. And his little, uh, little poem says, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You heard that before. It was engraved on my heart back as a young person, a university student. And I've never forgotten it. Only one life will soon be passed. Say it with me. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Really puts everything into perspective, doesn't it? If we could just remember it. So stay with me just a moment longer, I promise, and we'll be done. So that we can think about how King David dealt with the temptation to get stuck in despair or to give up just because the going got tough. His psalms are actually full of these exercises in emotional intelligence. We ought to be reading the psalms every day of the year. Is that you? I try not to miss a day without reading a psalm. And sometimes I go back and read yesterday's again too. Hombre, when I get to Psalm 119, I, I split it up. <laughs> There's just so much. I, and I, I was not an emotionally intelligent person. I really needed it when I realized, oh, this is about emotional intelligence. Just more avidly, I focus on the Psalms every day. So, nope, yeah, there it is. Psalm 143, just verses 6 through 12. David is mulling over his stressors, his anxiety, his weaknesses, his vulnerability. And he, in doing so, he begins to cry out to God in a way that is intentional and exemplary, exemplary for us as we face a new year with all the uncertainties that await us in this new year. So I invite you to read it with me, all right? I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Yahweh, for my spirit faints with longing. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Rescue me from my enemies, O Yahweh, for I take shelter in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your namesake, O Yahweh, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, Silence my enemies. Destroy all that afflicts me, for I am your servant. All right. Just four 
quick comments about this and we're done. This is what I see David doing here that will help you and me. There it is, all in a, one blow. One at a time. First of all, he worships and thirsts for God. Look there in verse 6. How he says, I spread out my hands to you. That's, that's a sign of worship in the Hebrew culture. He's spreading out his hands to God. He's worshiping him. He's thirsting for God. He's realizing that in his soul, in his inner being, he is so thirsty. His soul is parched, just like the land. And the only thing that can satisfy his thirst is God's spirit. So he calls out to him by name. At least three times in this short passage, you see him refer to God by the personal name that David knew for God, which is Yahweh. You, mean, you know, remember that name means the one who is. God told Moses, I am who I am. The one who is permanently, the one who permanently is, <laughs> always, Yahweh. David treasured that name because it was the personal covenant name by which God had revealed himself to his people. Yahweh, calling to him by name. Do you call on God by name or do you just call him God, God, God? There's so many gods in the world. Call him by name. Call him Jesus. That's the human name by which he came to be known and by which he made known his father. Call on him by name. Paul says that's how we come to know salvation. Calling on the name of the Lord his name is Jesus. Remember it in your prayers. Worship him. Thirst for him. Realize how thirsty you are for him. The second thing he does, he verbalizes his fears. Not just his fears. He'll verbalize other things as well. But notice in verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Yahweh, for my spirit faints with longing. I think I'm just going to collapse. I'm at the point of giving up. I'm at the point of despair. He verbalizes that fear before God. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to verbalize his trust in God. In other words, he rehearses. That's the next line, isn't it? Number three, he's rehearsing. He's going over it. Verses 8 to 10 is his confession and notice, I, I've tried to color code it a little bit. Uh, the first part of the verse, verses 8 to 10, is his request, his petition. And the latter part of, his, of the verse is what he does in response. Okay? Let me hear in the morning of your unfailing love. He starts the day recognizing how much he needs that. Why? Uh, why should God do that? Because I've put my trust in him. My trust is in you. He's rehearsing that. Verse 9. No, still verse 8. Show me the way I should go. He's recognizing there in number 3 down at the bottom his need for God's guidance. And he's confessing this to God. Show me the way I should go because I lift my soul up to you. What does that mean? Do you know how to lift your soul up to God? Um, this is very spiritual language, isn't it? It's very abstract, but... He recognizes his soul is in need. It's like I would take a child and lift him to God and say, God, please take care of this child for me. 
That's what I do with my soul, my inner being, myself. Just lift it to God and say, God, here I am. Take care of me. I'm so needy. Verse 9, rescue me from my enemies. Do you have enemies? Not flesh and blood, says Paul in Galatians and Ephesians 6. It's not flesh and blood, is it? It's principalities and powers. It's the sin that so easily besets. It's an enemy who wants to trip us up and deceive us. Rescue me from my enemies because I take shelter in you. Another translation says, I hide myself in you. He's thinking what he does in order to facilitate God's responding to his need. Verse 10, teach me to do your will. You have a teachable spirit? You know how much you need God to be teaching you every day? For you are my God. That's a confession. He's looking to God and saying, you're the one. I don't want these other gods that have tempted me and that sometimes have dominated me. I want to put away all those gods. I want you alone to be my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. And then in verses 11 and 12, he reverses it. He starts with the motivation. Why should God do this? Why should God preserve my life? And that word literally means sustain, revive my life. Why should God revive my life? For his name's sake. Not because of me or because of any worth or value or merit in me. It's because of his name. His name is so worthy. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, sustain me, revive my life. Again, why in your righteousness? Because you are a righteous God. Bring me out of trouble. Because of your justice and you defend the, the defenseless one. Bring me out of trouble. I can't, I can't accomplish that on my own. I need you to do it for me. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all that afflicts me. And here on the last one, he switched the order. What's the reasoning? Why should God do this? I'm your servant. I'm your servant. I don't want to be anybody else's servant. I just want to serve you. That's meditation. That's what we need to do with God's word daily. That's what feeds our soul. And feeding your soul is what brings about soul transformation. Remember the term? Soul transformation is what God wants for all of us. You see, what you really need in the new year is mercy and grace. And if you're accessing the Lord's presence and his resources like this through his word, you will have access to all the mercy and grace you need in 2024. Would you pray with me? Oh, Holy Savior, we praise you for your holy word. It's, it's the fruit of your breath. And that's why it is so full of power to transform our lives for your kingdom purposes. We long for that, Lord, as we look back over 2023 and we realize all your goodness and kindness to us. And we realize also the times that we have fallen short time and time again. 
And then we look out at the challenges of 2024, Lord, and we say, Holy Savior, Emmanuel, walk with me daily. Be my God. Teach me to do your will. Teach me to call on you by name, Lord Jesus, that you may accomplish your good work, your transforming work, so that I truly learn to love you with my whole being and learn to love my fellow human as myself. Blessed Savior, you did it so perfectly. Keep my eyes focused on you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.